as Lisa said, our last lesson in our series, The Gospel Plus. We've been talking about understanding and sharing our good news. Uh, before we get to the text this morning, uh, I want to give you your gospel summary for the week. Each week, I've said, we're going to try to make it easy for you, a concise way that you can share the good news of Jesus. And you've already heard it. You've already said it. You've sung it a couple times this morning already. It is the classic line from John Newton's Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. It comes from a story from John chapter 9, which if you have some time over the holiday, open up John chapter 9. You'll read up. It's a funny story. It's a wonderful story. It's, it's just Jesus at his best, healing a blind man, and everybody going, what happened? And he says, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I don't have any more information except to say that I was blind, but now I can see. And it's because of Jesus. That's, in a lot of ways, that's the gospel. That's our testimony. Amazing Grace is probably the most recognized Christian hymn ever, and maybe will continue to be. You don't even have to be a church-going, Jesus-following person to know Amazing Grace. You start singing it in a restaurant, maybe try that sometime. Uh, I bet people know the words. Very popular, very famous. I just want to share with you quickly, uh, briefly, the story that's behind the song. And you may already know this. If you don't know it, it's in the songbook on page 129. But there's just a snippet of what it says about the song's author, John Newton. The song was written back in the 1700s. It says, as a young man, John Newton was involved in the slave trade and involved in gross immorality. He was eventually imprisoned and then rescued by a friend of his father. But in 1748, he boarded a ship and encountered a terrible storm on the way. After 27 days of being lost at sea, the crew finally sighted land. This experience drove Newton back to the faith that was taught at his mother's knee. He became a preacher, and the fire that was now lit would never again be extinguished. At age 82, near death, almost blind, and with fading memory, John Newton spoke these words. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Newton is someone who was spiritually lost because of the things that he was involved in, because of the, the bad apples that he hung around with. He was involved in human trafficking. And then he became literally lost when he was 27 days adrift at sea, wondering if he would survive. But he did survive. And that experience made him realize his need for a God who says he will never leave us and never forsake us. Now the term lost, referring to somebody who is not near to God, it might be something that's a little bit, uh, makes us uh, uncomfortable these days. I don't know that anybody wants to be labeled as lost person. People don't like labels anyway. But lost actually is the language that Jesus uses to describe those who are far from God. If you read in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about, I came to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luke chapter 15, you get these three amazing stories of something being lost and then being found, and the celebration that followed. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son story. And in the story of Zacchaeus that we heard a few weeks ago, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and save who? The lost. That is Jesus' mission in this world. And if we are followers of Jesus, that becomes our mission as well. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our testimonies of being able to say we were lost, but we're found 
in Christ, that you called us out of the darkness and into your wonderful light. Help us to understand what that means. Reignite a fire and enthusiasm in us to share that, to declare that. Give us more opportunities to do so. We ask that you will give us ears to hear your word this morning. May it be an encouragement to us, and uh, may it make us form us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, our Lord, and our Savior. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. That's not the whole sermon. Some of you were like, oh, there's more? Yeah, there's more. Um, but you'll like it. This is kind of a little bit of a history of Tri-Valley, a little bit of a retrospective. You may not know this, but this morning is Tri-Valley Church of Christ's 3,785th worship service. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's, that's a lot of worship services in a row. The very first meeting of the Church of Christ here in Livermore was on May 6, 1950. It was on Mother's Day, 1950. We didn't have a building back then. We met here. You might recognize this building. This is Forrester's Hall in downtown Livermore. It didn't look like that in 1950, but it's still there to this day. It's right across the intersection from Espresso Rosetta. You can go there. This afternoon, you can check it out. We met, the church met there for a while. And then in 1955, it moved into a building uh, that is now located at 2346 Walnut Street. And that was where the Church of Christ met and gathered. Uh, did I put another picture of that in there, Rinda? There's a picture of like uh, people, like a candid shot of people just gathering around outside. That's what the church looked like in 1955. I don't, I don't think anybody was here then at the Walnut Street. John, you were. Okay, so you remember. Can you name everybody in this picture for us real quick? I'm just kidding. I know, I'm just kidding. But this is a bit of Tri-Valley history. In 1964, I'm obviously jumping and, and fast-forwarding quite a bit, but in 1964, the church purchased the land that we have here now on the corner of East Avenue and Almond. That's, what, that's the building that you're in right now. If you stand back in our parking lot and you look at it, you go like, oh yeah, that looks familiar. That's the door to get to the nursery. That's the door to get to room seven. And a little bit different and uh, I had another picture but I didn't show this in the, if you look at it now there's so many trees behind this building because the trees that were babies in the 60s are like boom they're giants now but that was the church when we first got here um, in 1971 the church engaged in a something called a star magazine mailing program you can go back I don't have a slide for this one Arinda. Um and I asked so many people what was the star magazine mailing program and they were like uh we don't really know, but there's a note about it in one of our church scrapbooks. And what I can put together is it was an effort when we were in this location to try to invite people to come and worship with us, come and get to know this church. It was like you pay money and you mail out these flyers with information about the church's gathering and just kind of hope people will show up. There's still versions of doing that today, but uh, if anybody has information about Star Magazine specifically and the mailing program we were involved in in the early 70s, talk to me because I was really, really interested in that. But the thing that people do know a lot about, it happened in 1973, and this is the bus ministry. Uh, Tri-Valley did not invent the bus ministry. It was actually quite a popular thing uh, among Churches of Christ at the time. The idea is you purchase buses, you go out in the neighborhood, you pick up kids. On the bus ride, you teach them about Jesus, you bring them to the church building where there's a fantastic children's ministry program, and you can tell them about Jesus, you can connect with their parents. A lot of you were around for the bus ministry. A lot of you are here at this church now because uh, the bus picked you or your kids up and brought you here to help you know more about Jesus. 
Uh, there's a lot of information in those scrapbooks about the bus ministry and about the children's ministry programs. Really, really fascinating. I want to share one gem with you, and that is, this is my favorite part too. This is the existence of Robbie the Robot. <laughs> Robbie the Robot, side note too, if you've ever been in the Family Life Center and you've heard somebody referred to as one of the closets, the storage closets, as Robbie's closet, that's because that's where they kept Robbie the Robot. That's where he lived. And when the kids came for Bible hour time, they would bring out this robot. And here's, here's a quote from the scrapbook, some information about Robbie the robot. His mouth contains a speaker, and his head rotates with the help of an old TV rotor. His hands are simple garden tools. I don't know if you can see there. They're like little uh, gardening claws, not at all terrifying for children. Um, and he's programmed for all Bible knowledge. Robbie the robot is programmed for all Bible knowledge. Knowledge. I don't know exactly how this works, but I'm imagining kids are going like, Robbie, how many books are in the Bible? And he would go, six day six. Is that accurate? Dodie, does that sound right? <laughs> Was that Robbie? This is such a cool and creative idea that we were involved in. Uh, here's a photo from 1979 of the church taking a group of people from Tri-Valley to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the soul-winning workshop. You might recognize a couple writers there. You got Wes and Deanne, they kind of look exactly the same, don't they? Man, those two aged well. Soul winning workshop. Here's another photo, oldie but a goodie. This is uh, somebody you might recognize pretending to make a phone call in the church office. Who is that? That's Rod Davis. And he looks kind of the same too? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. So Rod making phone calls, encouraging people for Christ. I'm not sure what's happening in this photo, but this, it was so fun looking back in our church's history, and this is obviously like a very, very uh, abridged version of, there's so many more stories, you know, I, I wouldn't have enough time to talk about the church hiring full-time youth ministers, that's how I got here in 2010, they said, youth program, let's just, let's hire a youth minister, so I've been here the last 12 years, but community outreach events and trips down to Pepperdine, service projects, the benevolence ministry is its own long chapter in our church's history, Bible classes, going to camps, the West Coast Girls Conference, the pumpkin launch, supporting missionaries in the U.S. and foreign missionaries. And I have to ask this question, why did we do any of this? Why was this part of our church ministry? Why did we send out mailers and build buildings and purchase buses and invest time and money into these ministries? Why did we fly people to conferences and build robots and launch pumpkins? I think you guys know the answer. It's written in big letters on the slide you're looking at right now. The gospel. Everything that we did was for the sake of the gospel. The people of this church who followed Jesus wanted lost people, people who didn't know Jesus, people who were far from God, to become found in Christ. We wanted them to come closer to the Lord. Listen to this blurb from a Joybus newsletter that was printed in 1977. This kind of states well the whole purpose behind this massive ministry effort. Since the time we started the bus program here in Livermore, our main objective was to spread the word of God to the families in the Tri-Valley. Those who are involved in the bus program see a different type of success than just numbers. We see souls that have been saved by the teaching of God's word through the bus program, we see the parents of the writers that we pick up being visited and taught and baptized for the remission of their sins. 
what it's about. Helping people know Jesus. Here's another uh, blurb that I'll read to you from this. This is authentic. This is the Joy Bus flyer that they had on the bus in case parents were like, where is this bus going and why should my kid get on it? Which, surprisingly, they didn't ask that often. It's just like, "Uh, there's a bus. Yes, get out of the house for three hours. Sounds good to me. But this, I found this one, and it's got that smell, like an old library book or like a Led Zeppelin album. Mm. Smells like the 70s. And this is what it says. We have chosen this as one of our methods of bringing New Testament Christianity to the community. One of our methods of bringing New Testament Christianity to the community. People who may be far from it, people who may have practiced growing up but then got out of the habits, this is all the reason behind it. Sharing the gospel has always been the motivation behind what this church has done. Helping people know Jesus is just in our DNA. It's who we are and it's what we do. I want you to listen to a passage from 1 Peter. This is Peter encouraging a group of weary Christians in the first century who are struggling with their identity and wondering if their faith, the faith that they'd learned about Jesus Christ, was still even worthwhile. Peter is going to tell them, this is who you are and this is what you do. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter writes this, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, and then like a good preacher, he goes into some quotes from the Psalms and from Isaiah, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who don't believe, another quote, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And this is Peter explaining again. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, this is who you are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter taps into some Old Testament texts to show these tired Christians that the prophets even knew that God's Messiah would not be accepted by everybody. He says, don't be surprised when people reject Jesus. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize they're shooting themselves in the foot or sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. It's a bad move. It's a mistake, but they don't realize it. They're still going to do it. People are going to reject Jesus. He says, but not you. If you're wondering if you should reject Jesus the way that a lot of people are and the way that it's becoming unfashionable and you're just ready to give up, he says, don't give up. You know that what you have found in Christ is it. It's the most important thing. He calls it the cornerstone, the central, most valuable thing, and you need to hold on to that. I just want to kind of pause. This is a related note, but it's just a side note that's been on my mind lately. Isn't it a good thing when someone comes along and helps you understand or be reminded about who you are? They help you figure out your identity. When you're maybe wondering, is this who I am? Is this what I do? 
It's such a refreshing thing. But I've noticed that lately, in our modern society, it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a negative thing. There's this, this attitude that we put on our young people that says, like, you've got to figure out who you are. You are a blank slate. There's all these options out there. Go figure it out. Do your best. It's kind of abandoning our young people. Maybe we can help them out along the way, but, like, it's hard enough to figure out who you are uh, just in general. To do it on your own, to do it with, with multiple different opportunities and options, and then figure out what you're going to do once you figure that out. But there was a time when it was simpler, when families would gather around their kids and say, all right, we're cobblers. We fix shoes. We have a cobbler shop. We have tools to fix shoes. And you can be a cobbler, too. In fact, we hope that you are, because we have cobbler wisdom, and we have cobbler skills, and we have a cobbler reputation. We know how to run a cobbler shop. We can set you up. We're not just going to send you off and say, figure it out. We're going to put you in a car that has a half tank of gas in it. This is a helpful thing. But I'm amazed at how much these days people are going like, that's oppressive. That's not okay. You can't tell me. i got to figure out what I want to do on my own. I think that's too heavy of a weight to put on people. So like I said, a little bit of a side note, a little bit of a soapbox. It's what Peter is reminding these Christians of here. They're going, we don't, we don't even know if this is who we are. We don't know if this is working for us. It seems to just be causing problems. Should we go back to what we were doing before? Should we just do what everybody else is doing? Peter's like, no, because you're on the right track. Don't give up. This is who you are, and this is what you do. He tells them what you are is a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, this is loaded with Old Testament imagery. Just, it's, it's easy to see that even for people that are not very well-versed in these quotes from Isaiah and from the Psalms. The royal priesthood. Remember that? The tabernacle, the temple image. This is the intermediary between people and God, reflecting the praises of people up to God, reflecting God's glory, God's word back onto the people. That was a special job. He's like, that's who you are. You're this priesthood for Christ. You're a holy nation. Holy meaning you're set apart. You're consecrated. You have this special role. You have this special special ops assignment. And he says you're God's special possession. Like all the passages in the Old Testament where God refers to Israel as my beloved. Oh, parental language. Language that is going to chase after them when they've gone astray. Just, oh, I love Israel as my beloved. They frustrate me so much. But I'm not going to give up on them. You're God's special possession. And the first thing he says is you're a chosen people. This is a reference to when God chooses Abraham, makes him the father of all nations. This is where Israel gets its start. He says, I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham goes, cool, I like how this is going. But God reminds him, I'm not going to bless you so that you have a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Through you, all nations will be blessed. Hmm. That's something for us to keep in mind as well. Tells them, this is who you are, and then he goes on to tell them, and this is what you do, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's what you do. Reflect the light of God into the world and praises the people back up. That's your role, that's your mission, and that's your purpose. Kind of like the women who were running from the empty tomb. They ran and they told the good news that Jesus is not dead but he is risen. That is your mission. It's like the last things that Jesus said, according to Matthew. Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. It's written on the wall over here. 
Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the mission of the church, the mission of the followers of Jesus, to tell people the story of how we once were lost, but now we are found. A lot of Christians can relate to what we heard a lot of at the communion table. People saying, like, there's never been a time when I've not known about Jesus. My parents taught me about Jesus. I grew up in church. I never felt lost. I was not, I don't have a story like John Newton's where I was way off track and just like fearing for my life and then came back and had this amazing turnaround. That, that's not everybody's testimony. That's not everybody's story. But everybody knows the difference between being near to God and feeling far from God. Feeling like we're walking in the light. Feeling like we're Lost in the darkness. These are stories that are worth telling. Even if you don't have a dramatic conversion story, you can still tell people how good it is to follow Jesus and to grow in your relationship with Him and with God the Father. But the question that we come back to so often is, how do we do that? How do you say that? How do you do it well? It seems like in the church's history, we used to have better answers for that question. How do we do it? Well, you get a bunch of buses. You go out in the neighborhood. You build a robot. The robot will teach the kids. We go to conferences. We have events. We have programs. We do lots and lots of potlucks. We had answers to those questions. And people sometimes see where the church is now, and they say, we don't have buses. And even if we did, would that even work <laughs> these days? Lisa, would you put any of our kids on a mystery bus going to mystery church? that I would either. We sometimes feel lost because we don't have an updated method, or the methods that we used to have are not there at our disposal anymore. But while we don't have the methods, we still have the message. The methods will always change, but the message stays the same, and the message is the good news that Jesus Christ is risen, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is Savior. I like that woo-hoo, Evie. That's good stuff. Yeah. I've been thinking this week about uh, gender reveal parties. If you're familiar with, like, uh, you know, people are going to have a baby. The doctor says, I can tell you what gender it's going to be before the baby's born. And you say, cool. But, like, we want to announce it to our friends and neighbors. We want to make a big deal out of it. Um, Lisa and I have done some gender reveal parties you guys have been a part of. There was one time when uh, we had our third kid, and we're like, well, let's try to do something different. What if, instead of us knowing and telling everybody, what if everybody in the church found out before us and you guys told us and surprised us on a Sunday. So you might remember, um, Robin and some others coordinated. Uh, the whole church had bags of confetti. And he was eating you know, pink confetti if it was going to be a girl, blue if it was going to be a boy. Uh, this is when we were pregnant with Leah. And then at the end of, after worship was over, we walked down the center aisle, one, two, three, and we threw the confetti. It was pink confetti. And you guys all knew because you had the confetti. But Lisa and I went, oh, cool, another girl. And it was, it was awesome. You may have uh, seen stories on the news about gender reveal parties getting out of control and starting wildfires. <laughs> like, there's fireworks. It's like, oh, we didn't mean to burn down that field. We're just getting a little carried away. We were excited. And lately, this is my favorite. This is something I've, that's been becoming popular in the last couple of years, is people will hire professional wrestlers. Have you, not if you've seen these on, on YouTube. They'll hire professional wrestlers, one dressed in pink and one dressed in blue, and they'll battle it out in, like, someone's backyard at a picnic. And whoever wins, like if the blue one pins the pink one, it's a boy! And that's, that's how you <laughs> reveal it. 
to your friends. Pretty elaborate, kind of a big deal. And I'm thinking, these are, these are just getting, it's a lot of hoopla just to tell somebody the simple news. Just at its core, no matter what you do or how you reveal your thing, you're just excited and you want people to know we're having a daughter or we're having a son. All this hoopla aside, it comes down to this joy that you have with news that you want to share. And isn't that similar to what we have as Christians? We've done, there's been hoopla. There's hoopla still in various churches and various events and various creative ways that we can communicate the gospel. I mean, I like hoopla personally. You may have learned this about me. I'm not against the hoopla, but what it comes down to is just we have this message that we want to share, that Jesus is Lord. This fall, we've kind of focused a lot on the gospel. I wanted to make sure that we understood what we were talking about when we said the gospel. That's why we've looked at all these New Testament passages. We've uh, given you gospel summaries, images, slogans, hymns that concisely convey the story about Jesus. We've talked a little in here about evangelism. In our Sunday 930 class, we've talked a lot about evangelism, how to share your faith, different methods, different techniques. We've given you homework. We've sent you out into the world to practice it. We've heard communion testimonies from members of our church talking about why they love Jesus and how they came to know Jesus in the first place. And we're going to continue to do that. There's going to continue to be ways that we equip ourselves of sharing the gospel. But if we don't invite others to meet and follow Jesus, then we may have missed something major in who we are and what we do. Something that is key and essential to our mission as the Church of Christ. A reminder that we're not blessed to have a blessing, but we are blessed to be a blessing. And the best blessing that we can give to the world, the only thing that we have of any value at all to offer is Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story about Jesus encountering a demon-possessed man. This guy's life is completely useless. He's crazy. He's naked. They try to chain him up. Everybody in the town just sort of keeps their distance and lets him live out in the, the wilderness. They're like, oh, we don't know what to do with this guy. Jesus comes into town and says, maybe we should do something about this. And he heals the guy like that. And everybody in the town, they don't even recognize him because he's sitting and he's clothed and he's in his right mind and he's conversating. And they're like, is that really the same guy? This is amazing. His life was totally transformed just from one encounter with Jesus. And then there's some interaction with the people from the town, and then Jesus has to leave. And of course, the man that he healed, he wants to get in the boat, and he wants to go with Jesus. He's like, you changed my life. I just want to be close to you. Can I be part of your, your crew? Can I, can I travel with you? I just, I'll go where you go. I want to be where you are. But you might remember the story. Jesus says, no, you can't come with me because you have a job to do. I've got a mission for you. He tells him this. Go home to your own people and let them know how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Go and tell. I've observed and I've read that the number one reason that a lot of Christians give for not sharing their faith, not talking about Jesus outside of church, is that they don't think they know enough. Number one reason. There's a lot of reasons. Just 
we think about this a lot, but the number one reason that people give is that they don't know enough. I don't, I can't preach like Jacob or Rod or Jim Hitt or Steve Martin or any of the people who've stood up and taught us. They know so much. They've studied so much. They just they can explain things in a way that makes sense. I'm not them. I can't do that. I'm not Robbie the robot. I don't have all Bible knowledge. I don't know enough. Kind of begs the question, how much do you need to know before you can tell somebody about Jesus? There's people in our church who've been following Jesus for decades, and it's, it's an honest question. How much is enough? At what point will you know enough to go, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to go live with my faith. I'm ready to put it out there. I don't think Jesus would agree with the reason that a lot of people give. I don't think Jesus thinks you don't know enough. And the reason I think that is because he tells this guy that had one encounter with him, go. You're an ambassador for whatever this is. Just go and tell people what happened in your life. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them why you wanted to get in the boat and follow me. You guys, all of you guys here in this room today, you did that a few minutes ago during our communion time. You turned, you opened your mouth, and you said, this is why I love Jesus. This is why I follow Jesus. You do know enough. We know enough. This question is, will we share? Will we go? Will we live into this church's identity and our reputation and our history of saying, this is why we're going to do anything at all. It's in the hopes that people can draw closer to God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you hear our prayer this morning. Our prayer is for courage. Our prayer is for windows of opportunity to share. Our prayer is for joy and enthusiasm and coherent minds to share our testimonies. Lord, we are so thankful that we have heard about Jesus, that we have considered the facts, the testimonies, and we have said, yeah, we want to get in the boat. We want to go where Jesus goes. We want to follow him. We want to trust him. We want to be like him. God, help us to be like the man who was healed, who was lost and was found, who was brought out of the darkness, and who was commissioned to go and share that good news with others. There are people in our hearts right now that we just we yearn for them to come closer to you. And maybe we've offered them to, an invitation to do that, and they've said no. Or it got awkward and the conversation ended, but, but Lord, I just pray that we continue to be seed planters. We continue to be ambassadors for the good news that there's salvation in Christ. And it's such a good scene. It's such a good gig. It's such a good life, Lord. I'm thankful for my life in Christ. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that you commission us, that you send us, that you equip us, and that you go with us, and that you receive all the glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.